You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories, from best to worst. Will, how you doing tonight? Go, Matt. For the first time in 17 years, the alma mater is rudderless, directionless. Nick Saban is retired, and I don't know what to do with those feelings. So I'm just going to ignore them for a while. I have a question here for you that could possibly derail the entire show. We might spend the next hour discussing this, and I'm okay with it. We don't have a lot on the agenda tonight, so I'm, I'm okay with this. I want you to imagine the old grid plot. X, Y, and whatever the the other one is, the axis. Well, okay, we're not we're not doing three dimensions, I guess. Just the X and the Y, right? We're talking about artist writers tonight, and I want you to 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 see if we were to plot different projects or different creators on that grid, right? From let's say the uh, the X. Is bad art to good art? Mm-hmm. Why is good writing to bad writing? I want to see if there's if there is at least one creator in every one of those quadrants. And of course, I've already got one for bad art and bad writing. That's the one, <laughs> the only Sean Gordon Murphy. Absolutely. And and I think if we if we thought about it, we could probably easily find one for good writing and good art. I can come up with two pretty safely there. What you got? Darwin Cook, Matt Wagner. I was I was thinking Wagner. Not to spoil anything, we're talking Darwin Cook tonight. There's there's some rough patches to get into tonight. There are I think some of them might be him hewing a little close to source material. So that's journeyman stuff i think because the story that is has the roughest patches is fairly early in his attempts as a writer artist and he is so clearly pastiching something that i think he hewed a little too close to what he was pastiching i i think i'll agree with that good art bad writing okay are we talking a particular story or a a full body of work because that's that's tough right because I think a lot of writer artists' first attempts are very rough. They are usually overwritten, which is funny, but at the same time, I can kind of see it because they want to make sure they're not missing anything. So they mm-hmm. jam in all this dialogue and all this narration, and they're not trusting their instincts, which is as a visual storyteller. Okay, you haven't read it, but I will say Andy Kubert. He wrote a Damien miniseries 
sort of set in that Damien becomes Batman timeline. I think it's called Damien's Son of the Bat or something like that. His art is good, but again, it is it's painfully overwritten. But it's a particular standout in my head of I really like this guy's art, but oh boy. Miller is interesting to try to plot out here. Yes, I was thinking because I couldn't put Miller completely in that quadrant because often when he's, at least in his early career, when he's writer, artist, or just writing, his stuff is very strong. It's around the late 90s, early 2000s where he really goes off the rails. Sin City is problematic, but there's a vision to it. He's has a lot of issues, not and a lot of them are not good, but he's doing a thing, and the thing he's consistent in his vision, but it's it's with holy terror when things start to go really wrong. And Dark Knight 2. Yo, oof. Oof. And that's a a weird case of something where, yeah, we're not even going to talk about Dark Knight 2. Not until we have to. Yeah. Now, here's here's the real puzzling quadrant, right? The good writing, but with bad art. This one, in my mind, is possibly the one most open to interpretation because it's... And that's, again, it's a me thing. I can break down a story. I can easily say this story falls flat because of X, Y, and Z, because that's what I'm trained to analyze. For me, art is far more open to interpretation than story. Mm. What I consider good art is what other people might consider bad art and vice versa. I think all, in all fairness, I think that is equally true with story, but I have a much clearer in my mind view of what makes a good story than good art. I think there are people who probably would not like Brian Bendis's art. Bendis started out as a writer artist and his early stuff on Jinx and Goldfish and Fire and Torso is probably not to a lot of people's taste, especially people who come to him in superhero comics, because his art is all black and white. It's very blocky. It's very shadowy. I like it because it works with noirs, which is what he's doing. But I could see somebody looking at early Bendis and being like, oh, I completely see where the story is, but this art, ugh. Interesting. Okay. And I think, by the way, nearly all of the original image books, that first wave, your early spawn, your young blood, your wildcats, all of that, all falls in the good art, impenetrable story category. In the uh, in the Kubert uh, quadrant. Yeah, and I, I probably should have immediately, that's the stuff that should have immediately jumped to mind. I was just, my brain was in Batman mode, but... You look at Wildcats, that's that is the best freaking example. Or Brian Hitch's Justice League when he was drawing it himself. Again, the story was just a big old timey wimey mess, but the art was Brian Hitch. 
After having read several Justice League stories for this show, I think it might be real hard to do a Justice League story. Again, I think you have to accept that this is not the same world that you're used to. I also think we need to read, you need to read more Superman, more Wonder Woman to kind of get more of what that big superhero universe type stories are. But even then, those stories can be more intimate because you're focused on one character. When you have to have the whole team, it gets trickier. I'm trying to think of anyone who's known as a writer artist. Oh, another great example of the good story, good art, by the way. And again, we're outside the Batman universe here, but still, uh, Walt Simonson. Simonson's Thor is outstanding writer artist stuff. I did not think we were going to be able to fill out the whole graph. I'm I'm quite impressed with you, Matt. I again, I don't think the Bendis thing is because I like that stuff, but I it is something I can sit back and see someone looking at. I think we'd have to look in the indies for mm-hmm. good story, quote unquote, bad art, since a lot of it is non-traditional. I think you could see a lot of more traditional superhero fans looking at that stuff and not seeing not liking the art but getting the story i'm also trying to think like vertigo when there was writer artist stuff there it it is a fascinating thing i'm trying to think if there's anything i can come up with that's just objectively not good art and that is also always the thing any of this stuff is there, there isn't an objective good or bad yeah, of course. And and I'll defend my position on Murphy, as we've talked about before. Has no eye for color, right? His books are just devoid of life. Has no talent for faces. He's absolutely passable in action scenes. But everything else is just depressing to look at. Just very bleh. He directs his books to be colored with all of the life of dirty dishwater. It's just, it's not fun to look at. Okay. I'm going to make what is a controversial statement in some respects. Ooh. With the hedging, the statement that I fall in the great art, good story on this particular creator. But I think you could look at Jack Kirby's work the New God stuff, the Eternals, Devil Dinosaur, if you gave it to enough people, you would find someone who placed him in all four quadrants. Oh, oh, I'm sure. I think you could take Miller's work and put it in basically all four quadrants as well. Yeah. I think that Kirby had incredible crazy ideas, but he tended to overwrite and he never got past that. And... There are people who just won't get that blocky, chunky art that he did. As dynamic as it is, as great as I think it is, I can see people who would look at it and say, well, this is clearly from the 60s and 70s. This doesn't have the dynamism of modern comics or the nuance of modern comics and all of his faces are weird and this and that. I've seen people take Kirby's art to task. I disagree with them. But I could absolutely see someone placing him 
in all four quadrants. So I could see someone who likes his big, crazy ideas, but can't deal with the art. People who think the art is the foundation of superhero art, but can't get around the funkiness of his storytelling. People who can't deal with either, and people who think that both are really good. And I'll say this, all of these creators, and, and we're talking Cook tonight, get yourself a letterer. It is a rare artist who can letter their own work. Yeah, I think I, I think we have possibly placed creators in all four of these quadrants. There's a lot to think about when it comes to that. And again, it's it is really subjective. And I don't mean to shit on writer artist. I I really don't. I think that the the talent required to illustrate uh, a comic book is just like mystical arts beyond me. Same thing with writing one. And to try to combine both of those it just seems like an impossible task. And really, Murphy is the only one who makes me angry, who continues to do his thing and sell comics when it is objectively bad. I'll never get it. And we've talked about it. And I can see White Knight, but everything beyond White Knight boggles my mind. Because White Knight was at least someone trying something different. It didn't work. No. But the elevator pitch for White Knight is a functional elevator pitch. I can see why it was greenlit. Oh, what, what, what if what if the Joker went good? But actually, what if he didn't really go good? We're, we're not. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. No. Let's talk about good stuff, man. Yeah. Because Darwin Cook. This is a Darwin Cook week. And we are starting off with Trail of the Catwoman. These are the backup stories from Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 759 to 762. The writer is Ed Brubaker with pencils by Darwin Cook, inks by Karen Stewart and Cook, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Sean Connett, and edited by Matt Idelson. The cover dates are August to November of 2001. Slam Bradley has been hired by the mayor of Gotham to find out if Catwoman is really dead. As Slam investigates, the trail leads to a dead socialite, Selina Kyle, and truths he never expected to learn. Uh, we start out with a problematic creator watch on Cameron Stewart, who has been accused of grooming. So, yuck. This is yeah. the prelude to the first arc of Brubaker's Catwoman, which is drawn by Darwin Cook. So this is most of the creative team of that first arc that we've already covered and is pretty darn high on the board. It is actually at number 25. So very high on the board. And uh, New Frontier is at 19. So uh, Cook has got some entries right near the top. Yes. This is obviously from the description, not really a Batman story. Batman pops up in a couple places, but this is, is a Slam Bradley story. This is a detective story through and through. Interestingly enough, and uh, I, I almost texted you about this. I thought we were going to have a problem. The singles on Comixology 
759, right? This is where it starts. Mm-hmm. 759, 760, 761, 762. 761 and 762 on Comixology both have part three. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. Some kind of error in, you know, uploading it something. Somebody screwed up somewhere. And I was like, where am I going to go find this? But old DC Infinite, after I have to log in and change my password, because I can never remember my password, and DC Infinite always logs me out, as much as this kind of dovetails very nicely into one of our other stories, I thought it is a fun little kind of standalone it is nice to see Slam consistently getting the shit kicked out of him. And like this, this is a guy who can never, ever, ever get ahead. Like it is a rule of a DC universe. Slam Bradley cannot win for shit. Uh, and that's fun. It's because Slam Bradley is a 1940s detective. He is Sam Spade. He is Philip Marlowe. And that is what happened to those guys every time. If you read the books or if you listen to the radio play versions of these guys, they should all have, what's it called? The football players, the concussive. PTE. Yeah, because these guys are getting knocked unconscious literally weekly. Not an episode (laughs) of Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade or... Boston Blackie or Rocky Jordan pass without them being knocked unconscious. And Slam gets the shit kicked out of him at least once a chapter. Now, I think he gets through one chapter without getting knocked at, knocked around. He gets knocked around in the first chapter by the Swifties enforcers. The mob knocks him out in chapter two. He makes mayor's cops knock him out and beat him up in chapter four. I think he makes it through chapter three without getting knocked unconscious, but just barely. (laughs) It's a fun story and it's really good looking. Oh, is it ever? The nine panel grids work here because they're not every page one. Mm -hmm. And also again, this is fairly early in Cook's comics career. I said, this is August to November of 01. Ego, his first real long-form comic work, the first thing beyond any kind of short that he ever did, was October of 2000. This is less than a year after Ego, which, by the way, is even higher on the big board. That's up at number three. So when Cook is firing on all cylinders... My goodness, yeah, I forgot all about Ego. The splash page in part three, and this is the closest he gets to getting roughed up in that chapter, is when Batman is hanging him upside down to try to get information out of him. But I love that that splash is slam right side up. You're looking at him, but all the things are falling out of his pockets, heading towards the top of the page. And the lettering is reversed, so you have to turn the book upside down to give you the impression of what is going on with him. But you don't get it until you're looking at it because you're turning from the page in the the Rucka lead into that. I just think it's a great-looking page. 
And it's so cleverly done with all of the, the cigarettes and things falling out of his pockets to give you that sense of him being upside down. That is a really, really cool page. Frustrating when you're trying to read it on a tablet and uh, you don't have auto rotate turned off, but very cool idea. And this is a book that was designed before people thought we would be reading these things on tablets. Uh, just looking over Darwin Cook's uh, Wikipedia page, 13 Eisner Awards, 8 Harvey Awards, 5 Joe Schuster Awards, died at 53. Yeah. The books yeah. he would have created and the life he would have lived outside of, you know, fucking work, you know? One thing, and this is a credit to Brubaker. It would have been very easy being given the Catwoman assignment after the train wreck of the last 20 or so issues of the previous volume of Catwoman and just ignored all of that because it was a mess, a giant freaking mess. But here he actually uses the fact that both Selena and Catwoman are believed dead separately to write a really strong little mystery even though the reader knows the answer, it's not a mystery to us. It's a mystery to Slam. And using him to give insight into Selena Kyle as a character by him learning who she is. I don't know who thought it was a good idea for Selena Kyle to run for mayor of New York City, but that was a bad call. That was a weird, messy story from the beginnings of No Man's Land. When Selena didn't stay in the NML, she went to New York and teamed up with the trickster. And it was it was a Devin Grayson story. It's all right out of right out of that, where she, you know, steals a body and fakes her own death. And then Ostrander comes on and writes one arc with Selena getting into No Man's Land and Catwoman in No Man's Land. And then we get the Bronwyn Carlton stuff, which is some of the worst Catwoman ever. And then John Francis Moore comes on at the end and is like, yeah, you know how Catwoman has been deranged for the past year and has tried to kill Jim Gordon and this whole thing that's been going on and she's killing people. Yeah, that was that scarecrow. They had a run in, which we did see they had a run in and she kind of punked him. So he started manipulating her with things to ruin her life. So she really isn't crazy. It's just scarecrow stuff. Frankly, by that point, I think most people had given up on the book, hence the cancellation. <laughs> and so it was just a way that she wasn't irredeemable by the end of that run it is a really painful end to that first volume of catwoman i guess to be clear on trail of the catwoman it's brubaker writing and cook's art yes as was I that first arc of catwoman just to follow up on that writer artist stuff we're not talking about that here that's the rest of the night but yeah. this is this is still Brubaker with Cook. And this is early in Brubaker's time around the Bat books. I think he might have been, he just started his run on Batman at 
this point. Oh, no, I guess he'd been writing Batman for about a year by this point, actually. So he was a year into his run on Batman and now was taking over Catwoman after this. And this is when Detective had a steady backup feature. Although the backup feature here, we will never have to cover it because it does not feature Batman. But the first year of those backup features was this long, drawn-out thing called the Jacobean that had nothing to do with Batman and it went on for way too long. It went on for, yeah, it starts at 7.46 and then runs through through 7.57. So it's 12 parts. Then we get the a one-off about Commissioner Aikens and his history with vigilantes. And then this. And I love a good backup feature. I would rather pay a little more for a comic and get two stories because I, I feel like I'm getting more for my money that way. And they've they've brought this back as a feature in Detective. Strong backups that generally tie into the main, but they don't have to. No. And one thing I like here is that you know we've we've covered the main stories already. Visually, they are very different. Right. It's still Brubaker writing, but to have that sharp contrast is is something nice. It's Rucka on the main. Oh. Yeah, it's Rucka on the main My and Brubaker on the backups for this for five months. And then it's Judd Winnick and Cliff Chang doing Josie Mack after that, a character that we've seen in Gotham Central, and who was introduced in one of these detective backups before she moved into Gotham Central. I like the idea that the backups in detective comics were generally detective stories. But I just like that this story follows a lot of the very traditional P.I. beats. He's got informants. He's checking the underworld. He's checking with cops. He's checking with reporters. The crooked mayor. These are all right out of your pulp or noir detective tropes. And... This is what brings Slam back into the the Bat titles and into the DC universe. And he's stuck around pretty consistently since. He pops, he comes and he goes, but we don't have years of drought between Slam Bradley stories anymore because he works. He works as that gruff detective. I'd love to see him wind up showing up somewhere soon and working with Gordon and Bullock or at cross purposes with Gordon and Bullock. Uh, yeah, we have not done nearly enough with the Gordon and Bullock detective agency. That's just waiting for somebody to have some fun with. It really is. And Rom V doesn't have the time with all of the stuff that he's doing, but I'd love to see that get spun off into a Gordon and Bullock PI miniseries and just get somebody to come on and do a nice solid little four-issue detective story with Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock. Uh, uh, Slam and The Question would be great, too. Absolutely. I still think the first Slam Bradley story we did for this show, the one with Batman, Elongated Man, Slam Bradley, and Sherlock Holmes. 
throw Slam into any of those types of stories. I'd love to see him in a fish out of water. You wind up doing Slam Bradley off world. Uh, more like globe trotting, given a large budget by a client and him having to try to fit in in, you know, Paris or Cairo or Hong Kong and him just being a complete fish out of water. That would be fun. And keep it grounded. Oh, God, yes. Not Slam Bradley off world. That would be cute for, you know, a brief sequence where something happens and he winds up teleported to the market on some other planet. But it's literally like one page of him like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. I toss my cookies. Yeah. And then the teleportation effect wears off and he pops back up on Earth and he's like, never again, never again. Oh. I quit. Oh. Never. But yeah, I think we've we've talked we've talked this one through. Well, that means it's time to put Detective Comics 759 to 762, Trail of the Catwoman on the big board. We are at 360 stories on the big God board. Damn, that's 120 episodes, man. Yes, indeed. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Identity Crisis. Not that one. The story where Tim Drake takes up the mantle of Robin. And still, at a family-friendly 69, it's Batman and Robin and Howard. Number 100 is the first Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. Number 150 is Archie meets Batman 66. 200 is Blind Justice, the Detective Comics anniversary story from 598 to 600 250 is a death in the family 300 is batmite's new york adventure and at the bottom it's work of the lower quadrant of our discussion <laughs> before, curse of the white knight it sucks so let's think about where the main stories are on the big board Right. So we've covered half of this is in stuff we've covered because unknowing, which is 758 to 760, is at 98. There isn't a lot of Batman. We didn't even talk about it, but that's a really good sequence where Slam first confronts Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne acts somewhat out of character and clamming up about Selena Kyle and giving Slam the bum's rush. And then Batman grabbing him and basically telling him, stop, or else. <laughs> that uh, Bruce Wayne was not the laid-back playboy I had always assumed him to be. That's the Mad Hatter story, where Mad Hatter is getting the cops to do his dirty work for him. Two stories above that is Made of Wood, which is Brubaker's first arc when he was writing, the or second arc, when he was writing the main detective book. He goes off of Batman and goes over to Detective for a few arcs. So I think this is better than Unknowing. Just just visually and our, I think our shared love for Lamb Bradley. So that, that means we're looking at top 100. Yeah. Number 50, as you just said, Tim Drake's origin story has any crisis, not that one. Um, and then shortly... Right above that, you got Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, 6 through 10, Gothic, 
Gotham Central, Motive, three through five, No Hope in Crime Alley, Detective four fifty seven. It's getting really hard to get into the top fifty. Incredibly hard. I'm just looking at that, and I mean there are some stories that are probably going to crack it, but it's a rough ride to get up that high now. Okay, let's let's look at another one. At number sixty one is Fallen Angel, the first arc of the Azrael ongoing. I call that out only because it is also a story similarly where Batman has a very small part in the story itself. Who does the art there? Barry Kitson. Hmm. It's good. It's a little it's a little 90s, but it's solid and it's not completely over the top now. We have solo number 1 Tim Sale at 58. By virtue, I believe Primarily because of the Tim Sale art. Oh, yeah. This story is stronger? Yes. So are are we looking in the 50s, perhaps? I think we're looking somewhere mid-60s to mid-50s. Okay. Because I think you got it. 54 is another Brubaker. It's the man who laughs. Well, Cook's art speaks to me more than Doug Monkey's art there. Monkey's art is still really good, and that is a great version of that first Batman Joker story. Yes. So I don't think it beats that, but I would put it above 65, going straight laughter after midnight. The Batman Adventures annual with the different villains trying to go straight and then getting pulled back in. I'm not necessarily saying it goes below solo either. I'm just saying looking at what I'm sure it would go below and what I'm sure it would go above. I don't think I can put it up in this this contrast with what I said about solo. It's hard to put this above for the man who has everything at 60. Right. Because that's only there because it's not a Batman story. If we were ranking these just on the merit of them as stories, that's a top 10 story. Duh, is but it ever. it's just not a, enough of a Batman story to wind up in the top 50. The only Darwin Cook comic we have left to cover, by the way, is his issue of Sola. After today, that's the only one left. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah, and I, I have a couple, I have at least one story that I want to pair it with. And so I've been working on trying to figure out what the third is. And I think I finally got it, but that's for another night. So if we we can't put it above 60, so now we're between 60 and 65. The stuff in between there is that first arc of Azrael, the vengeance of Bane, the first appearance of Bane, and the two Matt Wagner, Dark Moon Rising miniseries, Mad Monk and Monster Man. Oh man, this is a this is a goddamn murderer's row in here. Yeah, I mean, I really think everything from one to about seventy is just even through seventy five is unimpeachably excellent comics. Okay, I'm proposing a spot. Propose a spot. Propose a way. I think this is the one that splits the two arcs of Dark Moon Rising. Okay, because. Mad Monk is better. The, I like the character stuff with Julie Madison and her dad in there a lot. 
I like the ambiguity of whether the monk is something supernatural or not. I think there's weirdness in Monster Men with some of the stuff with Hugo Strange and his his body man that doesn't make it quite reach Mad Monk. And I think Darwin Cook's art and Matt Wagner's art at this point are about on par with each other. But I, I would read Mad Monk first before I'd read this, but I would read this before I reread Monster Men. I was going to suggest splitting those two. You called it. Nice. All right. New number 64. And this is the first entry in the top 69 in in quite a while. I'm curious because I think the next couple of weeks have some, I don't think we have top 50 contenders, but I think we have a couple of books in the next few weeks that are pretty strong contenders for higher on the big board. You'll you'll see as we get closer to them what they are, everyone. Ooh. But our second story of the night is Catwoman, Selena's Big Score. This is a graphic novel with story and art by Darwin Cook, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Cook, and edited by Mark Chiarello and Valerie Diorazio. The cover date is September of 2002. At her lowest, after faking her death, Catwoman needs a score to get back on her feet. The one she takes up is certainly big, but means working with a jilted former lover and going up against the mob. So this is the one I think that we were alluding to earlier in the episode. This book is a very particular homage to a very particular writer. This is a pastiche of Donald Westlake's Parker novels, the books that Cook will end his career doing graphic novel adaptations of. Westlake's pseudonym writing those books was Richard Stark. Ah. So the Stark character in this book is Parker. He is a note-for-note older Parker. You just can't call him that. There are two or three very clear references to them that being the biggest but there's a line when selena calls stark he responds who do you think it is angie dickinson lee marvin played parker in a movie called point blank where his girl was played by angie dickinson yep and cute did you ever read the dark half stephen king novel no The Dark Half is about a writer whose nom de plume comes to life and tries to kill him. And he really wrote what he knew, didn't he? A little bit. And the nom de plume is George Stark. And on the car he's driving was a bumper sticker, high toned son of a bitch. When Stark is driving his own car in this book, it has the bumper sticker high tone son of a, and then the dust plume covers up the last word that you didn't want to say in this comic, but it's a reference to the dark half, which is in itself a reference to the Richard Stark nom de plume of Donald Westlake, who's a a, a writer who King admires as well. References within references. That's kind of neat. And none of it is clubbing you over the head and you didn't need to know any of it. No, no, just just little nuggets. I didn't know any of it when I first read this story. 
Well, I knew High Tone Son of a Bitch because I had read The Dark Half by then. But I don't think I connected it. When Selena specifically said Angie Dickinson, I'm like, okay, she had to have played Parker's girl in one of the adaptations. Although, interesting fact, Westlake and his estate never let them call the character Parker. They sold the rights to the books, but they kept the name because Westlake was so possessive of the character. Cook got the blessing of Westlake's estate to do faithful adaptations of the books and use the Parker name. Huh. Interesting. And they are stunning pieces of work. Oh, they're so good. But the problematic aspects of this book, which exists, and I will not deny that in the least, are absolutely because Cook is very specifically pastiching pulp novels that came out in the 60s and 70s. And he is staying very true to those tropes. The first book, The Hunter, came out in 1962. And Cook adapted four of the 20-something novels. The Hunter, The Outfit, The Score, and Slayground. And turned one of them, the man with the getaway face, into a short. He just adapted highlights from that one. It rings a little less sour for me because I see what he's doing while also completely understanding that some of the language he uses and some of the tropes that he plays with don't fly in a story created in 2002. Yeah, I'll I'll be specific. Uh, and these were the only issues that I really had reading this. We have the Arsler a couple of times. Yep. And then we have a supporting character who's fridged. Yes. I think those, those are your big issues that you're looking at when you're reading this. Those were the two. There's uh, at least one point where either Stark or Slam addresses Batman as a Nancy, but... That one, while problematic, is so antiquated as to almost be a, <laughs> yeah, grandpa. But actually, when I was thinking about the, the roughest things, it's the, the final story. The uh, final one of one those chapters is, that I thought was... Ugh. But also, that one as well is intentionally parodying something. But I agree, that is also... Ugh. suffers a, saint, a similar issue to this. But the fridging... That is a, a trope that goes back to the pulps. Mm. The the dame invariably died, mostly because you couldn't get your detective or your heavy to settle down. So you had to kill the dame who might have been the one that he fell for. Or you could just be a reacher and just go to the next town. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of those, too. And they usually had the secretary who was pining for them, who they would never settle down with. Oh, Money to, Penny. Yeah, a Money Penny. Sam Spade had one, Effie, who was always looking out, lo looking after. Oh, Sam. That was right there. But this, we're talking about the problematic stuff, but this is such a good caper. Oh, it is. And that's what all those Stark novels, the, the Parker novels are. They're all capers. I take it you haven't read the Cook Parker stuff? 
No, but uh, as you've been talking about, I've been looking it up on uh, Comixology. It looks real good. I've got the original like hard covers that are a little bit above a oversized like trade paperback prose paperback. Not they're not the size of a comic trade. They're maybe about the size of this tablet. But I also got them in what are basically the absolute editions. They call them the Martini editions. And each one collects two of those books. The first one, which was released when Cook was still alive, has a bunch of back matter, including versions of all the actors who played different iterations of Parker and Cook doing illustrations of Lee Marvin, Mel Gibson, before we realized everything that was going on there. The second Martini edition has an additional tribute story by Brubaker and Phillips. Oh, man. Yeah, that was never published anywhere else, just in that absolute-sized book. Oh, it's it's such good stuff. Such oh, I good bet. Stuff. And Cook has gotten better at lettering in the intervening 13 years. Because the lettering here is a little, is rough. There are times where he's trying to do some flourishes in some of those caption boxes where the letters smush together a little and it takes a second to pick up. Yep. It's it's by no means bad, right? It's just a little rough, especially in comparison to the art, which is gorgeous. And the structure here, the book one, book two, book three, book four, is also right out of the Westlake novels. So that's him really showing how much he loves that stuff. And the fact that, okay, you start out and it's Selena and it's set on the trail of Catwoman. This takes place during that. And you're getting stuff from Selena's point of view. And it reframes some of the stuff from the original story. Because there, when Slam goes to Swifties, this fence... He's like, I never even saw a Catwoman. I, I I never saw a face. I don't know anything about it. She just told some stuff to me. You're lying. And is he ever? Because here he's clearly one of Selena's inner circle. But you get that. You find out that there's a money train that the Falcons are running. And it's got $24 million on it. Frankie Falcone's mall. And that's being generous. His kept woman is the one who she wants out. She wants out from under. So she, if she gives the information to Selena, Selena will steal it and they'll split the money. And so you wind up with getting a crew together. She gets Stark. Stark brings in his like demolitions and tech guy, Jeff. Swifty joins in. Slam is involved. It is, again, similar to Trail of the Catwoman. It's very much in that early pulpy noir sort of vibe to it yeah these stories could have easily been collected together you can read them separately but yeah i think they are as you said are obviously interwoven i think it would be nice to have them in a single trade i loved the ending here it's fun to see uh, a heist come together but then it's also kind of fun to see it go uh you know go belly up and then Catwoman negotiating the aftermath of that and just steadfastly 
refusing slams any idea of going to the law or going back to Gotham and giving that money back. She says, no, my friends died for this money. You know, I'm going to make sure it goes to uh, a good place and you're not going to stop me. And the final moment as she cradles Stark's dead body for one moment before she pushes it off the side of the boat. It is cool to see such an inversion of that noir trope where it's not the tough guy who makes it to the end. Selena is the tough guy in this story. Mm -hmm. And it's the person who she might have loved who happens to also be a tough guy who winds up dead and her having to deal with that. I do like that Cook inverts that trope. Well, you can't kill off Catwoman in the book. Well, yes, obviously. The way that her relationship with Stark, you learn exactly what their history is by the end of the book, but it's given to you in just little nuggets throughout. And it doesn't necessarily feel like Cook is teasing you with it because when you need to know what happened, you learn what happened. But it's also never, let me sit down and tell you all Mm -hmm. my history with selena so it works you know the first bit of it comes from selena the second bit of it comes from stark the third and final bit comes from slam from the research he did when he was on her trail and it's it's really beautiful and i also love that as the heist is going down cook pulls back on dialogue and narration One thing you can definitely say for Cook is he, as a writer, knows when to shut up. Yes. Which is not something we see from a lot of other writer-artists. He knows when it's time to just let the story and the sound effects tell what's going on. The heist is done over three or four two-page spreads. And he doesn't overuse two-page spreads. There aren't a lot in this book. It's just that very, the beginning of chapter four, when they're doing the heist, that there's three two-page spreads as they're getting onto the train and taking out the Falcone guys on the train. It's so smartly done. I don't know if I have anything else. It's real good. Yeah. Aside from uh, those little problems and the the decision to... Uh, go it alone on the lettering. Everything else, very, very good. Some really nice pinups in the back, too. Mike Mignola, Kevin Nolan, real nice pinup work. Because I think Cook says in the afterward that because of where this took place, he wasn't going to be able to draw a Catwoman in the costume he designed for her. So let me get some of the best artists in comics to draw her in that costume instead. Worked out pretty well. I believe on that note, it's time for Catwoman Selena's big score on the big board. So at 100 now is Nightfall Part 2. Does this crack the top 100? I thought we were going to have to have a discussion of whether this was better than Trail of the Catwoman. I I wanted to start somewhere and I wanted to say, are we sure it's top 100? Because I think it is. Yes, I can confidently say this is top 100 for that ending, for 
in essence, a comic story that treats everything very seriously. Like there are consequences of the decisions that Selena makes, not just in the heist, but when she decides to leave Stark literally holding the bag or not literally holding the bag, wishing he was holding the bag. She takes the bag he was holding and leaves him holding nothing. Yeah. And I, I like that. It's very serious. And I can I can appreciate that. Is it better than Trail of the Cat? That is the question. It's a tough call because we've got those kind of sourdoughs. And, and I believe you've absolutely reasonably justified them. Uh, but they are there. Right. You can do a story that is a pastiche that avoids reiterating problematic aspects especially the use of the slur i can more readily justify the fridging because that is such a trope of this genre and that not happening sort of violates genre rules the slur didn't need to be there and it wouldn't have affected the overall structure of the book which one of these is more successful as a standalone story Probably Selena's big score because Trail of the Catwoman is cleaning up a lot of mess mm-hmm. and it's directly addressing a lot of mess. This doesn't need to explain why Selena is broke. And if you'd never read Trail of the Catwoman, you would still get what was going on with Slam Bradley. So this is probably more successful as a standalone work. That would be the only reason why I would say this goes higher than Trail of the Catwoman. Because for as good as Trail of the Catwoman is, if if we take these two together, Selena's big score feels more essential. It does so much for Catwoman as a character. And it still doesn't ignore her past. There are a couple of little references to her training with Ted Grant. References to Batman. It's not like it ignores all of that. It just treats it in a way that you feel like everything you need is here. Trail of the Catwoman does a good job with that, but still, it's you're kind of like, wait, she ran for what? Yeah. I, I like that moment where Jeff brings up the idea of Batman to Stark as the guy who stole Selena away. And he just like pushes a chair from out from under him. It would have been something to have a scene. And I don't know how you would have done it, but to have a scene with Stark and Batman. But you know what? The only thing I could absolutely see Cook not wanting to do that is he wouldn't have wanted either of them to lose. No. He had to find some way to, to let them both walk away, you know, having saved face. And that's real hard. These two stories are in the same area mm-hmm. of this list. I could see putting this somewhere. 54, 55, 56, maybe like below rooftops, but above gang war. Yeah, it's there's a, there's a good amount of count because you got rooftops there at 55. And then you've got Bruce and Selena go out on a date in the Brubaker and Phillips story at 59. And now you got Trail of the Catwoman at 64. This is a really Catwoman strong area of the list. So New 56, you're saying, in between Rooftops and Eternal? Yeah. Yeah, I can I can go with that. And our final story of the night is the New Frontier special. 
This is the Justice League, the New Frontier special, written by Darwin Cook, with pencils by Cook, Dave Bullock, and Jay Bone, inks by Cook, Michael Cho, and Jay Bone, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Ian Sattler. The cover date is May of 2008. Return to the world of the New Frontier with this collection of short, untold tales. When we recently were talking about the return to kingdom come arc of world's finest for the print column you asked me a question about how essential that story is to kingdom come and i think we kind of came to the conclusion that that story is not essential it's not going to change your understanding of kingdom come having read this story this falls absolutely in that category. Yes. Nothing that we get here in even the most consequential of these three stories changes what we knew from New Frontier. The first and best story, and there's a you, you can have a conversation between the first one and the second one as to which one is the objectively best uh, or subjectively best. That's probably a better way to phrase it. Anyway. The Batman Superman story felt more like Cook riffing on Dark Knight than anything else, right? It's it's his version of the ultimate, here's how Batman would stop Superman. And it was fun to see, but the character notes, just like in almost any Batman Superman confrontation, the character notes are sour. Batman seems off. Superman seems off. Diana having to play peacemaker between the two of them seems off, but it was, it's just a fun kind of thought experiment more than a successful story. It gives Diana the best part of that story, mm -hmm. which I kind of like. I like the idea that, okay, the whole dark Knight returns thing. If wonder woman was around, she would have just smacked these two little boys in the back of the head and told them Stop to it. cut your shit. Stop it. And Cook gets the notion of Amazons as warriors for peace better than I think a lot of other writers do. That they will try to talk out a problem before they smash heads. But they'll also happily smash heads if they need to. And we said it when we did New Frontier, and we'll say it here. Good God. Darwin Cook draws Wonder Woman better than nearly anyone else. Yes. She has such a presence. She's big and she's powerful, yet still feminine. He finds the way to do that just so well. And it's not cheesecake either. No, she's beautiful. She's strong. She's sexy, but she's not an object of the male gaze. Which is where the third story falls off the rails. Yes. The third story is also intentional parody, but it's not particularly funny. And no. I think that's where it kind of falls apart. And it's there, not Cook's art either. Right. Yeah. Jay Bone, his work worked with Cook a lot. He often inked Cook and was a much cartoonier artist in general. Yes, the third story, you know, let's just kind of like get that out of the way. It's Wonder Woman and Black Canary. It's 
both the second and third stories very much are playing with the way comics of this particular era looked at specific things going on in the culture. The second being teen culture and the third being the woman's movement. And Cook is clearly playing up the fact that the guys who wrote these stories didn't get feminism. And so it's a lot of boogeyman of second wave feminism. It's Wonder Woman coming off as something of uh, of her hectoring people. Her going into the Playboy Club and just beating up all the guys who were there. The only funny moment is when she sees Bruce Wayne is there and he's like, uh, I'm here uh, looking after a, after a villain. Oh, there he goes. Excuse me. It's the closest to a joke that lands in that story. The idea that she would take off her top and then beat people with it. Yeah. But then still have those beaten guys literally smiling up at her from the floor is kind of an interesting idea. I don't hate it, but all of the context around it is is not good. I think Dr. Marston would have appreciated that. Yeah. And the, the final note where Black Canaries, all these men here, the reporters, they're obviously not going to report it. And then one of the bunnies is writing, what are you writing, Gloria? It's like, okay, it's kind of cute. Yeah. Okay, the Gloria Steinem joke is pretty good. We've read worse problematic stories, and the fact that oh, this yeah, is yeah. intentionally parody takes some of the sting out of the problematic element of it. It just doesn't particularly work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not... Sometimes you can read the story and think, something's fucking wrong with you. Like, you need to, you need to get your shit right. This is... Nah, this just didn't particularly work, right? It's not funny... I do see what you're trying to do here. It just didn't work. The second story is a Robin and Kid Flash story. And this one is considerably less broad than the third story. But still, Cook is writing this. This is a Bob Haney sort of vibe. A very, hello, fellow children. Let me use our 50s slang. Except it's 1963. So this slang is about... Six years out of date. But it's a it's a fun idea. Like Robin and Kid Flash teaming up to stop an attempted assassination on John F. Kennedy. That's a bonkers idea. Oh, yeah. And them working at cross purposes initially and then figuring out, oh, right, we're Robin and Kid Flash. And them having to team up. And as Robin says at the end, they couldn't have done it without each other. Also, another fun little reference that you didn't need to know to get the story. The head of the bikers or the the roadster gang is Butch Luchik, L-U-C-I-C-K. Butch Lukic, L-U-K-I-C, is one of the main animators in the Bruce Timm School of Animation. He worked with Cook. He did a lot of designs. At the same time, Cook was doing designs for that, for the, the DCAU. So it's just like, hey, let me throw my buddy's name in here and make him a greaser. It didn't have to be every single name in the story. Oh, 
it's just the one. Tom King. But yeah, I liked this story. This story is fun. It works really well. And I like the the narration is consistently Robin's. I will say one of the other problems with one of the, the problems I found with the first story is that you keep switching narrators between Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, but there's no indication in the word balloons to tell you who it is. So it takes you a couple of narrative boxes before it's like, oh, this is now Batman speaking, not Superman anymore. It happens quickly enough, and Cook has their voices well enough that you can pick it up after only a couple. But it would have been nice to even have used, you know, a color of the narrative box so you weren't, for a second, why is Superman saying, oh, because that's Batman. Yeah, we have settled on the convention of you do a color and then you do the little little bitty logo. That's how we do that. Yeah, and we've gotten so used to that that not using it through me for a second in there and here you can make it look fancy because you could use the uh you know the classic superman black logo and i also liked in that the the second story just the oh hey we're dealing with communist saboteurs could there be a more 60s straw man villain and perfect we you know you know we didn't need to go into it we didn't need to spend a lot of time it was like hey they're saboteurs and I love Wally's solution. It's like, let me write something in 12-foot-tall flaming letters to tell them not to land the president's plane here. Because that's, that's Kid Flash for you. Why do Uncool, something- man. Uncool. <laughs> Why do something little when you can do it big? As you said, I think we said most of what we needed to about the first story. I did like that we got a little Catwoman cameo in there, that it was her who stole the kryptonite which is a direct reference to that one line in New Frontier when Bruce is confronting Martian Manhunter to stop the one in Metropolis. I needed $70,000 to buy a piece of rock. For you, all you need is a nickel for a matchbook. Ugh. You didn't need this story. That kind of told us everything we needed to. But I also did love that it just shows how clever Bruce is. It's like, okay, well, I'm a government contractor. They need a non-military boat. Let me volunteer my yacht. Sure, why not? It, good faith with the government. Not at all that I'm going to be eavesdropping on everything you have to say because, you know, <laughs> I'm Batman. Very, very clever. And it's not every uh, book you see the president popping up. That's That was fun. Yeah, it was, it was nice to see Ike. And just that, that discussion, they start both acting more out of character when they're actually fighting. The stuff at the beginning there with Clark, you know, Ike more or less telling him that you have to do your duty and him struggling with it was good. It just felt like the when he bought into it, it's like, all right, well, if I'm buying into it, I'm buying into it whole hog and I'm going to bring this guy in dead or alive. And Clark actually saying, you know, a minute ago he was trying to kill me. It's like, was he though? He had a cage. He very clearly wasn't trying to kill you. Because if he was trying to kill you, that kryptonite would have gone, you know, into your heart or into your head. Yeah. As as we have long discussed, like Batman 
doesn't like guns, but he knows how to shoot. Right. He he hit him with the kryptonite harpoon and very clearly was dragging him into this cage. I think Clark was overreacting at that particular point. But then Bruce is also calls him a, quote, motherless alien, unquote. Which Yeah, that was rough. Not a fan of xenophobic anti-alien Batman. We see that yeah. pop up every now and then and never a fan. But it does allow Diana to have that moment. And I do like the the final bits of narration that she gives about how she feels like her and Clark befriending Bruce will help him take a step back from the darkness and Clark's humility and accepting that he has to fake a defeat shows the truth of his character. Those are really good notes about both of them. Also, it was nice to see Darwin Cook draw Alfred, even if it was just a couple panels. It's always nice to see Alfred. It is. An episode does not go by when we do not point out that it is always good to see Alfred. Need more Alfred. It was also cool. Uh, I like the use of King Faraday. Cook knew which characters to use from New Frontier without overloading this story. Because it would have been easy to be like, oh, let's have a, you know, a cameo from Hal Jordan and a cameo from Barry Allen and this character and that character. It's like, no. It's the Trinity and King Faraday is there to set it up and a little bit of a cameo from Alfred and you're good. No, oh, the, the introduction was was so good. Just like, eh, what world is this? It doesn't yeah. matter. Rip Just Hunter, sit back and have a good time. Yep, Rip Hunter basically doing MSG3K. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. We should really just relax. It is a perfectly fine, but completely inessential comic. A trifle executed with precision. Precisely. And on that note, it's time to put New Frontier Special on the big board. So this one doesn't crack the top 100. No, it does not. Because let's see, number 200 now is Wayne Manor, Anatomy of a Murder. The story of Bruce's great-great-granduncle, the corpse found in Wayne Manor, the Waynes in the Underground Railroad. I think this this does go above that. Or does it go... I mean, what do you feel? Do you feel it goes a little lower than that? Because that's not Trifle Town. Trifle Town is lower than that. Trifle Town is the 200s. It's a really good trifle. Even, even if... The last story is not good. Right. That's the thing. For instance, 185, When in Rome, is similar in that it does nothing for our understanding of dark victory. But it's Tim Sale art, and it's really nice. I, I think it's somewhere in that 180 to 200 area. I, I would agree with that. I mean, it's about as good as Idiot Root. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's, it's in the 190s because I think the first appearance of the Outsiders at 192, I think does what it's more important. It does what it's doing equally well. And it establishes a team. It gives you who they are. This tells cute little stories from the New Frontier universe. They both do what they do 
well, but I think Outsiders is more important. So it it has the edge. So it's between 192 and 199. Okay, well, 198, the anthology parts of that Detective Comics 27, it's another multiple stories. I think I put this above that because that one is split pretty 50-50 between good stories and kind of meh stories. This one is two-thirds good stories and one kind of meh story. But I don't know if I would even put it above Sisters in Arms, above that. The Grant and Bray Fogel, Sarah Essen, Selena Kyle, Vicky Vale, Hunting Human Traffickers story. Sounds like the new 198. Sounds like. There we go. And that does it for tonight. Next week, fellow Comics XF writer Tony Thornley is coming back to talk about three stories of Dick Grayson teaming up with the people closest to him that aren't Batman. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. And a special shout out to Josh, who is, uh, who is currently down with the COVID. We hope by the time you're listening to this, you are well. Absolutely. Right out there to you, our brother. Asimov fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go, Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubox, Tim Rooney, Giorgios Reggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, Matt McThorne, McThorney, and Dan Ofer for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get bonus content, pick a story, shout outs, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm never leaving, but I'm going to bed. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.